Hello, hello, my intelligent rebels. I'm actually with Robert Green. Hello, Robert, how are you? Hello, Olivier, I'm fine. So we are here in your house in uh, yes. Los Angeles. Yes. And obviously, uh, you are the famous author of The 48 Laws of Power, right. uh, The Art of Seduction, yes. um, uh, Mastery, and yeah. uh, The Laws of Human Nature. And two other books as well. And two other books. Uh, you can't include everything. Which are? Uh, the 33 Strategies of War. Exactly, yeah. And the 50th Law that I did with 50 Cent. With the rapper. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And we are here to talk about, well, quite a lot of things. Your last book uh, came out uh, in French a few months ago. Yes. And uh, let's talk about uh, about that and uh, and uh, all the, the surrounding. Because I'm when I, I began to read the book, I was so impressed by uh, the wide range of topics and uh, influences and references mm -hmm. you have and not only it's like so 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 many different but uh, it's also very deep uh -huh. like uh, for example in this uh, in the chapter two of this book you you draw like um, uh, you, you you show a few examples and uh, about narcissist people and you start with uh, Joseph Stalin Yes. Then you uh, go with uh, a nun from uh, from the 17th century in France. Yeah. Then uh, it's uh, Tolstoy and his wife. Yeah. And then the explorer Shackleton. Yeah. So it's not only spread out uh, with different countries, different centuries, and yeah. but also completely different subjects. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, how do you do to uh, have this gigantic culture of general knowledge? Do, obviously, you read a lot, right? Yes. Well, um, when I start to write a book, my goal is to arrive at what I consider reality, like the core of something. So if you think that writing a book is like hitting a giant cement ball, I'm trying to get into the center of that ball, touch the reality, what really is going on, not just stay on the surface, which is what a lot of books do. Mm. So I'm chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, trying to get at the heart of it. So if I'm writing a book on human nature, I want it to come alive for the reader. I want them to feel that Robert really knows the subject. You know, he he's, he's talks not just about white men in the 20th century. He's covering Chinese culture. He includes stories of women. He includes stories of minorities. He covers the full gamut of civilization going back five or 6,000 years and even into our prehistory. So that the book has like this sort of depth and this feeling Absolutely. that I'm reading something complete. And in order to do that, in order to hit that reality, so that when you're reading it, you go, wow, yes, that is true, that is my experience. I have to do an incredible amount of research, you know? So for this book, I read well over 300 books for wow. research, wow. and I was able to organize it. And in fact, I had 100 books that I couldn't even get to, I couldn't even read, because I did all of that research by myself. I had nobody helping me. Hmm. So, um, you know, I'm very motivated when I start a book in fact, it's fun, you know, like I'm reading books about neuroscience, I'm reading books about anthropology, about our ancestors, you know, millions of years ago. I'm reading books on psychology, on history. So it's fun. It's a lot of fun. But um, I have to be able to make this book as complete as possible. Or you're going to say to yourself, oh, this, this doesn't ring true. This, this is kind of superficial. This isn't what I think of as human nature. So how do you choose which books you're going to read? Well, I've been doing this for 22 years. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, I worked as a researcher. In, in I was a writer before, but I also researched for films for Hollywood. So I have a lot you of did a lot of jobs before. A lot of jobs before. Yeah. 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 We once counted on and I maybe 60, 70 different jobs I've had. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've, so I have a lot of experience in research. And so um, when I choose a book, so sometimes books, I used to go to the library. I don't go to the library anymore. I do it all on the internet with Amazon and websites. But um, I'm looking for books that have in exciting new ideas, but that have things in it that are dramatic as well. So if I'm telling a story, as you mentioned, Stalin or these other characters, mm -hmm. It has to be a book that has like a that's told in a way that's dramatic, because my philosophy is I try and illustrate all of my ideas through stories, entertain the reader, make the reader feel like they're actually there, that they actually get to know Joseph Stalin and who he was and what he was like. Yes. So I have to read books 
that cover it in that way, that, that describe, the that make the character come to life, you know? One of my books on war, the main figure in the book was Napoleon Bonaparte. I read about five biographies of him, maybe 3,000 pages worth, wow. because I wanted to get the sense of who is Napoleon, what made him such a genius when it came to strategy, because all of the books I read didn't quite give me that sense. So I have a nose for books that are giving me the kind of material that I want. And I can tell when I open a book, because I ordered on Amazon, I'm not really sure if it's good or not. Mm -hmm. I can tell in the first few pages this isn't worth it. I don't even bother reading it. Huh. Or I can tell that there is something there. But um, I also try and look for books that are covering it, the story from kind of a different angle. So I usually avoid books that are... Um, I like to find books that no one has heard of that were published in 1930 that are completely out of print but that are incredibly profound because then I know nobody else has covered this before. I'm the first. I'm like bringing this back to life. Yeah, so, it's interesting because when I arrived, there was two books on your table, so the, your book in French and also this one, Le Voile d'Isis, yeah. so the Veil of Isis, yeah. uh, which obviously uh, you can tell just from the cover, it's not like a super popular book, <laughs> no, right? No. And, and it's like actually a very uh, deep book about philosophy. Yeah. And uh, actually, Heraclite, uh, Heraclite, I don't know. Heraclite. Yeah, a philosophy, which is like a, a philosopher from before even Socrates, right? Yes. Pre-Socratic philosopher. Pre so it's like that's the kind of books you read for your researches. Yes. So it's quite impressive. And this one is in French. I yes. mean, it's like. Yeah. Wow! Not even for even for French people, it can be hard to read this kind of book. So. Yeah, it, it's a little it's a little bit difficult. So what happens is, um, I'm reading a book, and it's kind of interesting, and then it references another book, mm. right? Mm. And I go, hmm, that sounds interesting. And then I'll go look at it on the internet, and I go, wow, that's great. And that's how I found that book. So a lot of it's kind of this this game, where you you read something. It references three or four other books. That leads me to three or four other books, you know. I have to be careful because it's going to explode and I'm going to have 8,000 books in my house. So when do you I'm know have you to have to move to out? Hmm? When do you know you have to stop? Well, it's I just a feeling? Well, I have to be careful. So I, I, I just, I look as closely as I can to see if a book I think is going to be interesting and I buy it. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't worth it, you know. I just have to, I don't know, I take a gamble. But I have a feeling, I have a sense of that. But um, for this particular book, it was like he was describing um, the origin of our relationship to nature mm -hmm. and where that comes from hmm. and why we have two different ways of looking at nature. One is the scientific way where it's kind of objective. We're going to use nature to exploit it and make things for ourselves and we don't care if we destroy it. And the other is kind of poetic and romantic, like, you know, feeling one with nature and writing about it and, and creating art out of it. And he traces the origin of that to ancient Greece hmm. and where it comes from. And I thought that's a fascinating idea. It is. And even if it's not completely relevant to my new book, I'll still read it because I find it really interesting. So I've also, you know, when you're writing a book, the writer has to be excited by the subject. Absolutely. And if you're not excited about it, it shows up in the book that mm. the writer kind of lost interest. So I have to play a game with myself. I have to constantly make myself excited. So sometimes I'll read books just because they're fun for me. And later on, I'll figure out how to put them into my new book. Mm. And obviously, you are naturally curious about a lot of things. You love to learn. And maybe you love the learning process by itself. You have to learn something new. Uh, regularly, right? That's right. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely the same, so I can yeah. understand that. So it's, it's really a strength if you know how to uh, channel it. And uh, so once you, you read like a lot of books about the topic, do you take notes while you're, you're reading or is it all in your head? No, nothing is in my head because um, I, I can't possibly keep that all in my head. That's, that's a lot of information. It's a lot of information. So as I'm reading a book, I put little marks on the side to highlight what I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll even write in it. So you write? You write? You're, oh, yeah. You don't oh. use post-it like a... No, no, no. no. Okay. I, I tear book. I write through, all through it. Oh, okay. And if I hate a book, I'm like, shh, shh. I'm saying, fuck you in the margin. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, I can show you books like that. <laughs> okay. So I like writing in the book, etc. And then maybe two months later, 
I go back to that book and I take notes on cards based on my little highlights. Hmm. So if it's a good book, I may have like 10, 20 cards with different topics mm. on it. And you see immediately when you open, right? It's like, it's, it's, it stands out from yeah. the book. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you can see really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I can see what was interesting in the book. Mm -hmm. And then later I can organize all the points. So if there's a book in which there's like 50 interesting little tidbits in it, which is a lot for a book, I now have that all on my cards and I can take those little interesting bits and I can put them all together. It's sort of like you have a sauce for um, a food and you boil it down to its essence until it gets really, really delicious. Mm. I'm going to boil down a long book into like little nuggets of really interesting truths. And it's all organized on my cards and it makes the writing of the book really easy. So when I'm right, get to sit down to write a chapter, I'll have like 60 cards and then I can look at them and I can say, oh, this is what I'm going to write about. And it's all organized already. Okay. Yeah. So, and, uh, I was, you know, I thought about a writer when I read, read the examples you were giving of uh, Stalin and the others. So as you said, it's like, we, I really had the feeling of uh, like, as if you would talk about a friend, you know, like yeah. as if you would know Stalin by yourself. Right, right. And it, it reminded me of an author, he wrote The Accursed Kings, you know, Les, Rois, Les Rois Maudits. Uh -huh. I, I think it's Accursed, Accursed King, Kings in English, and it's, it's a, a, a series of books that really influenced heavily uh, George Martin's for uh, Game of Thrones. Maurice Druon uh, is a series of books, he's very famous in French, and actually George Martin was so heavily influenced by these that uh, he asked his publisher to republish uh, the, the translation in English that were completely out of print for, for like two decades. Uh, mm. And that's how I discovered actually uh, this guy, you know, that's because George Martin talked about it, saying this guy really uh, influenced me. And when you read uh, The Accursed Kings, you realize that Game of Thrones is like a mix of The Accursed Kings and uh, Lord of the Ring actually uh -huh. so it, it 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 makes more like transparent the creative process of george martin and just to say that this guy uh, he, he really knew how to uh, make dead people alive well that's that's sort of what i try to do and i'm very interested in that so i'm going to look this up for my next for my next book. yeah so i'm curious about how you started all of this so right now you have this process that yeah. is really like uh, you have a lot of experience with it yeah. and you said you were a researcher before but yeah. your first book was quite a gamble yes right i yes. mean you it's a really good a big book already and uh, you didn't know if it would work or not right. so yeah. what made what started you on this journey was it just like a, the next logical step for you well i think um suicide is what st started me on my next journey Whoa. i was very depressed in my mid-30s you know i wanted to be a writer. I've been writing my whole life, but never had any success. I tried journalism. I tried theater. I tried film, Hollywood. I worked in Hollywood. I hated working in Hollywood. Why? I just, you have no control. I'm, I like having control. You write something and then eight other people get involved and they give you your notes. By the time it's finished, it doesn't resemble what your idea was. It's hmm. just watered down. Hmm. It turns into rubbish. Hmm. I hated that process. I have a vision, I want to complete it. Hmm. It's like if you had a vision for your own business and then eight or 10 other people said, no, you have to do this, this, this. By the time it's finished, it's not yours anymore. So I want to have my own thing. I'm have an entrepreneurial spirit. Anyway, so I was very motivated to get out of this trap that I was in, this sort of depressed feeling. Like I didn't know where, where I would end up in life. And even my parents were beginning to get worried about me. I'm 36 years old. And I met a man who is a packager of books, just, just by coincidence. I was in Italy at, at the time. And he asked me if I had any ideas for a book. And I don't know, sometimes it's like you don't know where things come from. It's almost like a voice inside of me that I didn't even know suddenly pitched this idea for the 48 Laws of Power. Based on all of my experiences, I had 60, 70 different jobs before then with all of these really bad bosses, really mean, manipulative people, not all bad, but a lot of them bad. Hmm. I saw lots of power games, lots of manipulation, and it kind of, made, kind of made me angry that nobody describes what really goes on in the world. And I read a lot of history. 
I read things like the things about the Borgias. I was obsessed with Machiavelli. Read things from ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and I thought nothing has really changed. I'm sitting there working for a guy in Hollywood, a film director, and he's just like Cesare Borgia. People aren't getting stabbed or killed, hmm. but it's still you know he's still being extremely manipulative. Huh. So I had this idea that nothing has really changed. The violence isn't as extreme, but the manipulation, the games, the power games are the same. And I told this guy, we were walking in Venice, Italy one day, and he, his eyes lit up, he goes, wow, what a book. He said, he's Dutch, he said, Robert, I will pay you to write this book if you, when you go home to Los Angeles. So I borrowed money from my parents, sorry Yost for my bad imitation. <laughs> I borrowed money from my parents because I was broke, and I wrote a treatment up that turned into the 48 Laws of Power. But basically, I was so motivated, so sick of my life. I so much wanted to be a writer. I so much wanted to be successful. I so much wanted to bring all of my experiences of life, all the things I had witnessed and seen over the course of 20 some years of working that I just had to write this book. Hmm. And when he gave me that chance, it was like, get rich or die trying kind of thing. I was either going to write it or that was it, you know? Hmm. I was incredibly motivated. And in the course of a couple of years, it just came out of me. So that's sort of how I started on that. And sometimes you don't know why or how you get involved. Life circumstances kind of push you in a direction. And you find that and you go, I like this direction. I'm going to follow it. You know, if I hadn't met this man, I don't know where my direction wow. would have been. Crazy. I could have found another direction. I could have found it in film or screenwriting or a different kind of book. But he gave me that and I took it and I've gone as far as I can with it. So that's sort of the start of and it And you all. came quite far. Yeah. Very, I'm very lucky. Because if I tried to write The 48 Laws of Power now, it wouldn't succeed. I wouldn't be able to sell it. Why? Because I'd be a first-time writer, and people are very conservative now. They look at, they look at a book that's long, that's 400 pages long, right. and they go, yeah. nobody's going to read this. They don't know who you are. And even when I wrote the book, people were, were very confused. They didn't know what to do with it. Because if you look at it, it's a very strange book. It has things on the sides. Yeah. It's visually very weird looking inside. You've never seen a book like it. You might hate it, but you've never seen physically a book that looks like that. It was a huge risk for me and for them. Nobody would take that risk right now. So I'm very lucky. Yeah, you, did you have a hard time to convince your publisher? No, we had people offering, giving us money. We had publishers who wanted it. Okay. but. When we, so we sold it to Penguin, but then Penguin, the editor came back to me and she said, Robert, we love the book, but we want you to change it a little bit. It's a little too strange for us. We want you to get rid of these sections that you have. We want you to make it more kind of one thing, one chapter. And I go, if you, if you insist on that, we're walking away. We're tearing up the deal. We'll go somewhere else. You really had your vision and you wanted to implement yeah. it. No matter what. I didn't what. want to make a boring conventional book. I wanted to make my book yeah. the way I saw it. Something that like is so interesting to the reader because when you open it up, <clears throat> it tells you a story. And on the margins, it has like fables and quotes. And then it has <clears throat> a section where it interprets the story. And then it has like images with words. And then it has more quotes. And, uh, and sections, you've never seen a book like that. Yeah. And I wanted the shock of it on the reader, and I thought that's what would sell. And, and my partner, he, he backed me up on it, so, yeah. And it went really well. Is it your best-selling book so far? By far. By far. We sold more, more than two millions, right? <clears throat> Just in the United States, yeah. And then there is uh, the rest in the world. Yeah, I know probably. in France it's, it, do, it does very well. I think you're close to 100,000. Really? That's very yeah, nice. Yeah, I think, yeah. So at least 60 or 70,000, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so wow. Yeah. Yeah. And wh why you didn't uh, follow this uh, format? Because the, the last book is more in a traditional in the Well, I wanted format. to, yeah. <clears throat> but um, they wouldn't let me because really? ran, I was... <coughs> Excuse me, I was falling behind the deadline. Ah, yes. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I wanted, I was going to put the things on the side. And they said, Robert, we don't have time. It's going to be too expensive. And so they said no. And I was very upset, but I had to agree. But then they agreed for my next book, which I'm working on now. They will let me do the things with, 
with margins, putting things on the side. Okay. So I will revert back to that style. I wanted to do it for this book, but I couldn't. It's interesting to to know that even when you are a famous writer and you you don't have anything more to prove, you can you still have some type of hard time with a deadline. I can't say I, I I pretty much can write my own ticket now. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, they I was very late in delivering this book. Yeah, and they didn't penalize me at all for it, but they gave me a choice. They said, Robert, you could try and do the side things and everything. First of all, it's going to cost a lot more money, so you probably will sell less. But second of all, you won't be able to publish it this year. You'll have to wait another year. I said, I don't want to wait another year. I've been working on this for five years. I want the book finished. Yeah. So, you know, I really, I could have done it my that way if I wanted to, but I saw that the, there was a cost to be made. I'm a practical person, you know, and I wanted this book finished and I wanted to move on to something else. So. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we talk a bit uh, uh, off camera about your upcoming book. Yeah. Do you plan to do a second edition, maybe, of, of your book with uh, the format you envision? At, at the That's start? a great idea. Um, maybe someday, yeah. yeah. I have all the material that I was going to put on the sides, so I could do it. And yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll... Yeah. I'll ask you to help me with that. Why, why not? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it could be cool. Yeah. I, I mean, for the second edition of my book, I did quite a few changes. So really? it's always a good uh, opportunity. You yeah. know? We, we, we tend to see a book as something like is uh, like in marble. Right. You know, but right. you can change. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good idea. Uh, something really strikes me when I read your books is, uh, you know, a lot of authors uh, are kind of trapped into a certain political correctness, you know? And you have been described by some as a modern Machiavelli, yeah. right? right? And uh, it seems you, you are bold to go far beyond what most authors would not dare to do, right? Right. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's scary for most people to, uh, to, to go above the political correctness because you have the risk of uh, uh, being criticized a lot, maybe even to have a bad buzz. Uh, and it's a fear of being ostracized from the from the from the tribe. Right. So how do you do to overcome this fear? Do you have it? Uh, was it like? No, I don't have that fear. Um, you know, I, I did. I there were some friends of mine who were like no longer my friends who were very upset about the Forty Eight Laws of Power and hmm. the Art of Seduction. They said, Robert, I didn't think you were like that. That's, you know, we thought you weren't this nice person, and here you're writing these evil, amoral books which I don't consider evil or amoral. Basically, um, you know, when there is so much political correctness in the world, it's actually a great opportunity to do the opposite, you know? Because I feel people are secretly oppressed by all this correctness, mm-hmm. by all these conventions, by all these people saying, you have to say this, you can't say that, you have to can't offend these people, you can't do that. And we're all secretly oppressed by it. We want to be free with it. We want to think freely. We want to have people who tell us the truth and don't have to disguise everything. And so I always thought when I wrote The 48 Laws of Power, all those self-help books out there, there's millions of them. People write them all the time and they have no connection to reality, to me. I think the world of work can be very harsh, very competitive. People are, are very selfish. They're thinking of their own agendas. I'm not judging it, but that's the reality. Mm. When you enter, when you work in an office, it's not all this peace and love thing going on. People can be very difficult. There are toxic personalities in this world. Nobody writes about that because they're afraid. Academics don't want to write about that. And people who are writing self-help books don't because they all want to have this pretend, this fairy tale that we're all kind of like angels. And so I say, no, I'm going to give you the reality. I'm going to give it to you straight. I'm going to tell it like it is. And some people hate it and some people have demonized me. But I think it really, really resonated with a lot of people who said, at last, this is, you know, I remember when I first wrote The 48 Laws of Power, I was doing a book tour and I was in Washington, D.C. It's the first book I've ever written, you know, so it's very new and exciting to me. I'm in Washington, D.C. and I'm in one of the build, government buildings there. This woman comes running up to me with her book, The 48 Laws of Power. She's like whispering, she goes, Robert, thank you so much for this book. This is exactly what it's like working here. Nobody wants to talk about it this way, but this, I remember it very well. She was so like, didn't want anybody to see that she was reading this book, but it like really resonated with her, 
you know? And so, um, you know, people like to treat the reader as if they're a child. Mm -hmm. They talk down to the reader as if, oh, you're not going to understand this concept. You're too stupid to understand philosophy or psychology. I'm going to make it very simple for you. And I don't like to talk down to the reader. I like to assume that the reader is an adult. They can understand if I write a chapter called Crush Your Enemy Totally, that there's a bit of irony involved, that I'm not talking literally about going out there and killing people. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about something that happens in business, and I'm kind of revealing to you a strategy that people use in the world. I assume that people are adults and they can handle that, you know? So yeah, um, I do get people who get very angry about the books, but I've noticed, you know, my books, particularly the first one, are very popular among African Americans, right? Yeah. Because um, they they have been on the other side of power. They see the they've seen the ugly side, mm. the violent, the manipulative side of power. And mm. when they read this book, it rings very true to them, mm. and it's actually very interesting and helpful. Mm. But people who are kind of have some guilt about power. I often find the people who were so ang most angry about the 48 laws are actually, in, in truth, very manipulative people. They actually do practice a lot of the laws, but they don't like to have it publicized. It, yeah. yeah. Wow, yeah, so it was like really, I can feel when you talk about this, like you, you are angry about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you were like a bit revolted, and it was like a mission for you to say, fuck you. It is, exactly. <laughs> That's not how it works in yeah. real life. Yeah, particularly, particularly in Hollywood, where everyone wants to pretend that they're so progressive, so woke, mm. you know, always for the liberal causes. And look what we see now. Like, this, this is the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. He was always for the most liberal causes, supported all the Democrats. And I'm a Democrat, so I'm nothing against that. But, you know, but look at what he was doing behind the scenes, mm -hmm. you know. I saw that a lot in the world of Hollywood. People who were so progressive with the facade, But when the door was closed, they would yell at their assistants. They would play all sorts of nasty games. And it made me, the hypocrisy of it made me angry. Mm. Yeah, and you wanted to, I mean, at least rectify in your own way. Do, do what you can to, for that. So it gave you a lot of energy and also the courage to make the sacrifices, for example, of some of your friends who said... Yeah, uh, well, not very many. A lot of them liked the book, but some friends are no longer my friends, yeah. Yeah, and I, I really love what you say that it's a way of uh, actually standing out from the crowd and that it's, yeah. it connects with something that a lot of people want. Uh, well, I've written in, in several of my books that if you're a writer or a creator or you're creating a business, don't be afraid of anger. Anger is an incredibly important emotion. It's what will unite a lot. It's what creates a cause. So if you have some, you know, use the anger that you feel and put it into your work and use it as a way of attracting the public because people are secretly oppressed by all the smiles and politeness and things that they have to go through day by day by day that they actually are very excited to read something that that talks about it life in a different from a different corner hmm. from a different angle hmm. the other the only other thing i say is i've always been fascinated in history by by the court the aristocratic court Like Louis XIV, mm -hmm. the world of the court, and how everybody in the court is so political yeah. and so careful with what they say. Mm. And I thought, wow, that is like the perfect metaphor for how the world is today. You know, everybody, the moment you have like a power figure, you have even a, a business or a politician, a little court forms around that person. It's exactly the same dynamic. Mm. You know, around Macron right now, there's a little bit of a court that's formed itself, and everybody's very careful with what they say. They're all bowing and scraping and, you know, being political. That's, that's such a good analogy. Yeah. And, I mean, in the, in the laws of human nature, you also mentioned uh, Louis XV, who was very good at uh, trapping people, uh, like uh, arriving suddenly and uh, yeah. to see their body language in yeah. the first two seconds to right. see if they really like him or not. Right. Uh, so there was all, always in this kind of situation, you have people who want to see through the mask Right. And, and uh, see the truth for what it is. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm very interested in nonverbal communication. Um, I talk in all my books, particularly in The Art of Seduction as well, that we humans speak a second language, and the second language is nonverbal. And it's in our tone of voice, it's in our eyes, it's in, in how we carry ourselves, our posture. And that um, a lot of power 
is revealed through this body language, insecurities or confidence, etc. You can really read people through yeah. their body language. So I've been writing about that for in all of my books. Yeah, you describe it as the window to the soul. Yeah, like something that really can pierce the mask to see what is behind, and it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's another politically incorrect idea, which is that people are wearing masks. They're pretending to be something that they're not. So I talk in this book about looking at the opposite. So when someone is extremely saintly and progressive and woke, they're often hiding the opposite quality. They use that as a way to disguise what's really going on underneath them. They tend to project the opposite quality from what they're really experiencing inside them. Hmm. So, yeah. So I, I like to say that one of the best ways to learn is actually to teach. Because you, when you teach something, you have to have a real clarity about what you know. And you, have, you can have a lot of different ways of knowing something. You can know in a confusing way, and you can know in a very clear way. And uh, I, I, th I think writing is a way also of clarifying your own knowledge. Because you have to, in order to share it with the people. Right. So I, I'm curious, do you agree with that? But very much so. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious about what... Is, is there one thing that really completely transformed your life in all the, the stuff you learn while writing the books? Because obviously you learn a lot of things in the last decades by writing all your books. Is, it some, is there something that you apply in your life and completely change it or your perspective of the world that you didn't expect? In what, in something that I've read or in the actual writing of the books? Yeah, bo both or one of them. I don't know, I'd have to think about that. Um, I know that, um, you know, I've often, like in writing this book, I had to, you know, one thing that I've learned is um, I never have, I never can get, get too arrogant with my um, thinking, hmm. that I always have to push myself back to being the position of a child or feeling like I don't know anything. So when I wrote The 48 Laws of Power, the temptation, which a lot of writers have, is to simply write part two and, and work off the success that you have mm -hmm. and just kind of repeat the same ideas. Mm. And what I've learned is to always do the opposite and go to something new and to start and say, I don't know anything about this subject and to have a great deal of humility. I know it sounds like I'm a very arrogant person the way I was talking about politically correctness, mm -hmm. but actually when it comes to the subject, I'm extremely humble. Like I start writing the laws of human nature. I am completely open. I don't know what I'm going to write about. I have some preconceptions, but I try and let go of them, mm. right? So I try and put myself in a position of this book could fail. It will probably fail. People are going to hate my next book. I don't know the subject at all. I have a lot of work ahead of me. I have to start from zero. I have to start with the impression that this is my first book and I have to put all of my effort into it and make it something really great. Mm. And it, it makes it so that I never really kind of relax. It probably led to my having a stroke. You know, I work too hard, but I've learned that if I don't feel like I'm ignorant and that I don't know what I'm talking about, then I'm not excited enough. So the moment I feel like, oh, I know what I'm what this book is about. I, I, I've got all my ideas. I kill my own curiosity, right? Hmm. And so I don't, I start reading books with preconceptions. I read books that I think are going to confirm what I already know. And I like books that challenge me, that tell me something I've never thought of before. So I've learned to kind of really put myself back in square one each time I start a project. And that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. I enjoy it. I like that refreshing feeling like, I'm six years old. I'm just about to learn about math or, ge or geology. Mm. And I'm ex I, the world could be anything. I've got to discover what's out there. Mm. So that's, that's one thing I've learned through the process. Yeah, that's so interesting that uh, you're right. If you have preconceptions about something, it kills your curiosity in a way. Or you, you will only look for facts that support your, your point of view, yeah. which in the end will be distorted. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so that, that's something you learned by writing you didn't have naturally before? No, um, you know, it probably was in my character a bit because, um, you know, as I said, I like to, 
to um, get at the reality of something. I don't like books that kind of, I, when I read them, I go, that's not really my experience. There's something, they're missing something, right? So I'm probably motivated to, to go very deeply into the subject. But there was an incredible temptation to just start kind of repackaging the same books. And people criticized me and said, you know, Robert, you could have made so much more money if you just wrote the 48 Laws of Power Part 2, if you just kind of repackaged it over and over and over again. And I go, I don't, that's not how I want to do it. I have to be excited by what I write. And yeah, over the course of 22 years of doing this, I've learned how to constantly keep myself excited by each new project. So do you choose the subject of your uh, upcoming books only out of curiosity or do you have other... Very much so. Okay. So like nobody's written a book like the 48 Laws of Power out there. I know because I've read things. I'm going to write it. Nobody's written a book about the art of seduction the way I think of it. And believe me, I know because when I first started writing the book, I looked at a library, I went everywhere and there was not a... You could count on two hands the number of books about seduction. Hmm. Very rare from the way I was looking at it. So I'm going to be that one to write the book. You know, the book of strategy and war. Yeah, people, a lot of people write books about warfare, like the art of war, but nobody has written a book that connects warfare with daily life, hmm. business and warfare in a way that's very practical. Okay, I'm going to be the one that writes that. Hmm. Nobody has ever done a book with a rapper and a white guy coming together <laughs> from completely opposite backgrounds and write a book on their common philosophy. Can mm. you tell me a book that you know like that? Yeah, no. All right, so I'm going to do that. Mm. Uh, the same on and on and on. I want to read a book about human nature because it interests me, but there's nothing out there. So that's sort of what motivates me. I'm going to be the one that does it. And it's very exciting to feel like I talk in mastery that if you're starting a business, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, you have to look for that little niche in the eco in the ecology that no one else has has looked at, hmm. you know, that's where animals in in evolution will will survive. They find a niche that no other animal has, right? Hmm. And that's how you want to look at the at the business world. What is it that nobody else is occupy a place that nobody else? Because we're such conformists that everybody does what everybody else is doing. Oh, we're we're going to make Facebook too. Oh, we're going to do Amazon number two. You know, they're always they're, we're such imitative animals. But the power lies in going where nobody else has gone and finding that niche and doing something. Of course, it can't be too strange. Mm -hmm. It has to be interesting to people. But you have to look for what's exotic, for what nobody else is covering. That's yeah. always been my... You, have you heard of the Japanese concept of ikigai? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like uh, ikigai is like a mix of uh, four things. So it's like uh, economic potential, so you can make money out of it, passion, skills, and mission. Right. And when you have the fourth, the fourth, it's like you, you found your raison d'être, your like, yeah, mission. Uh, do, do when I heard you, hear you, I, I feel like you, that's your ikigai, right? Yeah, well, you, you really try to, to be on the four things at the same time. Well, that's sort of the subject of my book, Mastery. Yeah. I talk about how you first have to discover what your life's task is, what's what I call your life's task, mm. what makes you an individual, what's unique about you. You have found that out through your struggles. I don't know how old you are. But you've slowly... 39. 39? Yeah. Oh, you look younger. Thank you. Uh, slowly, through all of your different jobs, through the businesses you started, through writing the book, you've kind of discovered your little niche and what you were meant to do. But it's a process. It is. And so I talk in the book about finding that. And then once you find it, you have to develop real skill in order to be able to, you, to create something different. You have to base yourself in actual knowledge of other... of the of the... You have to go through an apprenticeship, what I call the apprenticeship phase. Mm. And then slowly you can bring out your uniqueness, what makes you different through your work and become creative. But you have to go through this process, which is very similar to the Ikigai, mm. and knowing what makes you different and what makes you stand out so you can bring out your own style in the world. You know, there's no power in imitating other people who are doing the same thing on YouTube or Instagram. The power is in finding out what makes you different, what makes you unique, what's something different about your spirit, your own weirdness, and bringing that out in a way that no one has ever seen before. That's mm. where power lies, yeah. So you studied a lot uh, human nature, not only for your last book, but also for all your books. Um, I would like to pick your brain or, or, or something like, uh, in your mind, how can we use human nature to improve ourselves instead of being slave to it? Uh-huh. 
Well, that's sort of the whole point of the book. And, I'm, and there's over 500 pages at right. that one point. Yeah. But the idea is you, the listener out there, you don't know yourself. You are a stranger to yourself. There are things that are motivating your behavior that you have no idea about. Do you realize that well over 95% of your act, your, what you do in the world is unconscious? Is, you're not even aware of why you buy things, of why you, you like this kind of film, of why you're attracted to this woman or to that man. You have no idea what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So much of our behavior is governed unconsciously. And I'm just saying that out of just to spout it. Science has backed this up. Yeah. And so you're a stranger to yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't know why you're, what you do in your day-to-day -day life, what, where it comes from. We follow our DNA programmation. Yeah. And we don't even know why, yeah. Yeah, but some of it, some of it's genetic, but some of it is from your early background. Yeah. So the role of your mother, your relationship to your mother and father and your siblings, has an incredible impact on how you relate to bosses, the the partners you choose for your intimate life, etc. And you're not thinking about this. You know, I read the story in one book about a young man. Uh, this is for a, a kind of a case story in, in psychology. He. Um, he had a very kind of narcissistic mother who didn't really take care of him. She always expected him to kind of take care of her. Mm. And he experienced this as a young man, as, as, as a child, of being kind of abandoned by her. And he felt very weak and vulnerable. Um, and so he grew up later in life. He was continually having relationships with women. But after a year, he would break them off. And he would break them off because he didn't. He couldn't stand the sense of they would abandon him. He had to be the one that abandoned them first, right? And he never realized that. He went through his whole life again and again this pattern, and he would always justify it. Oh, she's not the right woman. Oh, she's not being truthful. Oh, blah, 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 blah. And it was, he had 30 years of this pattern, never realizing that it stemmed from this tremendous fear built into him at the age of four that the woman was going to abandon him first and he had to be the one controlling it and abandon her. So this happens to everyone all the day. This is happening in your life and you're not aware of it. Mm. Maybe not something so dramatic as that, but it's affecting your personal relationships. It's affecting how you relate to figures of authority, on and on and on. So you're walking around as if you're asleep. You don't know why you do things. Hmm. And I call these patterns of behavior that are ingrained in you that you're not aware of human nature. Hmm. That there are things in us that come from how our brains are wired, how we are socialized, how we create a culture that cause certain patterns of behavior and that operate in us without our being aware of it. And I, can, I compare it to like a puppet master. Human nature is like a puppet master moving us around, making us go like that, you know? And, and you're, not, you're not aware of these things. So in order to change yourself, in order to have the possibility of getting out of your patterns, you have to know who you are. You have to know what these unconscious patterns are, what these, what these laws of human nature are. You know, I have a quote in there from Chekhov saying, Anton Chekhov saying, man can never change himself until he understands who he is. Mm -hmm. That's the oldest law in the world. Mm. You know, in, in, the, in the Oracle of Delphi, the, the inscription of there above it was, know thyself. It's the origin of all knowledge. Mm. So I'm saying in this book that you have to understand yourself deeply before you can begin to change, and you have to understand other people. You're never going to understand people completely. I can never get inside Olivier and know what's going on in your brain. I understand that. there's a barrier, mm -hmm. but I can get closer. And the closer I can get to understanding myself and understanding what makes you tick, the more I can like have the power to influence you, to, to get you to agree to some of my ideas. Right. To, to, you know, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you, you are more manipulative. I mean, you, you are more susceptible to manipulation. If you don't know, yeah. If things. you don't know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah, you don't know what influences you. Yeah. So it's all about reading the awareness of uh, like understanding what are the things that influence us unconsciously to bring it to the conscience. Yeah. So we can choose what is our reaction to the stimulus. Right? right. Yeah. So one chapter in there is about how we are conformists, how we our ideas 
they're not your, your, you think that your ideas are your own. They're not your own. Mm. They come from teachers, your parents, and they come from the group that you belong to, your tribe, online or elsewhere. You're so deeply influenced by the opinions of other people. You have a tremendous incentive to conform to other people. It's the animal part of us. It's the wolf in the pack kind of thing. Yeah. Or it's a primate thing, mm. social animals. So I want you to wake up to the fact that your ideas probably come from listening to other people. And I want to teach you to start to begin to think for yourself and to have some detachment and to realize that maybe there's another way of looking at the world, you know? So do you believe in free will? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, a lot of people discuss this, physicists, scientists, psychologists. It's a debate that people have. It's a very open debate. Yeah. My idea is that there is a margin of free will that we humans have. Mm. It's a small margin, mm. right? Because there's so much we can't control. I can't control who my parents were. Mm. I can't control how my brain is wired. I can't control the sex that I'm born into. I can't control the country I'm born into, who my teachers are. They've had incredible impact on me. They've formed who I am. I can't change that. But there's a small margin. And if I'm able to understand who I am, and I'm able to bring some willpower into that, that little margin is the difference between success and failure. That is the difference between someone who's completely unconscious of themselves and has a degree of awareness. Mm. So I'm aware of my own patterns. I'm talking about myself. I'm aware of how my unconscious drives me. And with that, I can change it a little bit. Mm. But that little bit is enough, is enough to give you some degree of freedom. Right, you can steer the boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, do you think we can increase also our little degree of uh, of uh, free will by uh, bringing the unconscious into the conscious? Very much so. Yeah, I have a story in this in the book. I mentioned Chekhov. He's one of my favorite writers and figures, Anton Chekhov. Yeah. He is a great example because he had a terrible, terrible childhood. His father beat him almost every single day wow. without any reason. He never explained. He never did anything wrong. He just beat him. Wow. And he said, and he did to all the other children, all to his five other brothers and sisters. And he said, my father beat me, and it's just the way it is, and it's going to make you a better person. On and on. His father was an alcoholic. He grew up in this miserable town, very poor. He had every reason to turn into a completely fucked up person. Hmm. And in fact... His brothers and his sister were, you know, they tended to be alcoholics. They were all going to destroy themselves. The family was a mess. And hmm. one point, the family completely abandons him, leaves him alone at the age of 16 in this town, and they all move off to Moscow. I explain in the book why this is. And suddenly, when he's alone, he realizes that my way of thinking, my parents were serfs. My grandfather was a serf, was basically a slave. And that slave mentality is still in us. My f grandfather bought his freedom, but we are still slaves. We never have become free. We're trapped by the past. We're trapped by these patterns, these ways of bowing and scraping, of beating their children, of, of you know, drinking, etc. I'm going to be the first one to break it. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to find a way to, to embrace work. I'm going to work really hard and become a doctor because that was his first profession his first profession and i'm going to forgive and i'm going to love my parents so his motto in life was work and love work and love devote your energy to your work and forgive other people and love them and don't carry around the bitterness mm -hmm. and suddenly that little margin i talked about was more like this mm -hmm. he was a free man mm -hmm. he could choose instead of becoming a self-destructive alcoholic understanding where his family came from He could now become a student, become a doctor, and become a great writer. And then he went on and moved to Moscow, and he completely helped his family and turned his whole family around. Because he wasn't just wow. thinking about himself. One brother ended up killing himself through alcohol, but he got all the other children to study and work hard, and he even changed his father to a degree. So yeah, but it takes effort. It takes an unusual person like that to do it. So there's degrees. Most of us have a little bit of margin. A truly great individual who's completely conscious can make that margin a little bit wider. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's almost, it's the same process as what Descartes did. 
uh, in his book, um, uh, Règle de la méthode, he said uh, that he started at, when he was young, he was like, okay, so I was taught all the things and now my mission is to find out by myself if it's true, if it's true or not. Right. And that's how I will become like right. what I am. And Chekhov did it also emotionally. Descartes was more about like the ideas right. and um, more than the emotions. Right. But Chekhov did that for that also is an emotional baggage, which well, is like so interesting. Well, the great thing about Descartes, his whole thing was, was kind of a skeptical philosophy, whereas he's going to look at all of his ideas, things that he learned, and he's going to challenge them. That's kind of the Cartesian method. Right, yeah. Is to not just accept the ideas that you have. You put them in a, in a ring box and you see how it goes. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm saying you need to do the same thing about yourself. Mm. It is, in, in a peculiar way, a kind of Cartesian method mm. where you have doubt and skepticism about I, I your own behavior. I think it actually. Uh -huh. Because Descartes was more about the ideas, but you can use it for all the unconscious stuff with yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So, as I told you, I'm an entrepreneur. Right. And I have been since uh, I was very young. And a lot of people who uh, watch my channel are also entrepreneurs. Uh, do you have, do, could you say like anything about how we can use the law of human natures to have better businesses, maybe to communicate better uh, to our prospects or customers or for marketing? Well, I have a lot of chapters in the book that would be very good for, um, for entrepreneurs. One of the most important chapters is about the spirit of the times, the zeitgeist that we live in, mm -hmm. and that how you have to understand that nothing is ever stays the same. Things are constantly changing in a process of, of evolution. So, and you tend to be rooted in the past. Your ideas tend to be like once, always one or two steps behind what reality is, how things are changing. So, you, you know, you're 39 right now, yeah. and now there are people coming up who are 19, 20, who don't think the same way you think, who don't have the same values, the same tastes. Yeah. If you remain locked in your 39-year-old world, you won't be able to appeal to them. So you have to have the kind of mind and spirit that is a student of, of generations, of, of how things change. Mm. And you have to be the kind of person that can anticipate the next move. I always talk about how it, one of the quintessential moments of this was Steve Jobs, when he was sort of looking at the future of computers in like the year 2000, and he saw that what things had to be was to, to miniaturize, to have something that you could hold in your hand, right? So he had a vision of, you know, this is where young people are going, right? They don't want all these bulky things. They don't want to carry all this stuff, you know? And he, he, it wasn't just research. It was also kind of an intuition. And so he created the iPod, which has completely revolutionized our world and led to the iPhone and everything. Right. So you have to have a nose for what's next, right? And that's not easy. And I describe in great detail how you can get out of the block of your own generation. Awesome. I call it generational myopia. I don't know if you have that word in French, myopie. Yeah, myopie de génération. Okay. Right. Yeah. So your generation tends to create a kind of a tunnel vision. You think that everything that you grew up with is great. You know, I'm kind of on the cusp of Generation X and baby boomers. But baby boomers are the worst about that. They think that everything that they grew up with in the 60s and 70s is right, is reality, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it creates a kind of a tunnel vision. You need to widen that. You need to be able to, you have to be a student of what's going on in the world and never, never um, assume that things are staying the same. You know, I worked on the board of directors for a publicly traded company, American Apparel. Mm -hmm. And the Where Ryan Holiday worked too. Hmm? Where Ryan Holiday worked. Yeah. And the problem that we had there was that the, the man who founded the company, a great entrepreneur, Dove Charney, brilliant man, but he was so locked into the success he had in the early 2000s, which was all about creating sexy clothes from the 80s. They didn't realize that by the year 2010, 2011, a new generation was coming up that wasn't so inter interested in those kind of sexy latex short shorts that were so popular you know, earlier on. And he lost the, t the touch with his audience. Mm. I talk about that with a lot of rappers, and I go into deeply in the book that I did with 50 Cent and how you have to always be in touch with your audience. Hmm. So that's one of the main lessons in there, chapter 17. I also talk about leadership and how you lead a group of people 
and how it's very difficult in the world today to be a leader because people are very suspicious. They're very cynical. They're very cynical about authority. They don't like authority. It's not like my parents 50, 60 years ago that were much more respectful. Nobody has any respect. Just because you're the president or the CEO or the founder doesn't mean shit anymore, <laughs> right? So you have to be aware of that. So how do you lead a group? You have to lead, it's like an art, it's like a dance. You have to be very respectful of the group, but you also have to have a degree, you have to be stern. You have to have a vision of where the company is going and be very clear about that so that other, other people don't constantly kind of push you off course. And you have to lead from the front, which means you earn people's respect by working harder than anyone else there. You take responsibility. You treat people fairly because everyone now is so sensitive about being slighted. Oh, he's being, she's being treated more fairly than I am. He's getting this. There's so, people are so hypersensitive about their privileges, about who has privileges, that you can't fall into that trap. You have to treat people with your constantly creating an atmosphere of fairness and of a team. And I talk in chapter 15 of how you forge a team of people that are on the same page, that are excited, and it's very, very difficult. And then finally, I, I've talked about chapter eight, which is the subject of my talk that I'm giving in Kiev, which is your attitude. An entrepreneur has to have a very open, excited, expansive attitude towards life. So for instance, you have to see adversity and failure as a blessing. You're not afraid of failing. If you're afraid of failing, you'll never be an entrepreneur because the best way of learning is from your mistakes, is from starting a business that completely flops and not getting discouraged by that and going, ah, I learned incredible. I learned what would take five years in business school. I learned in three months because my thing went down. <laughs> hmm. I understood why it didn't resonate with people. I understood what I did wrong. I understood, you know, how, it, you know, it wasn't monetized correctly, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to have an attitude where you embrace adversity. You embrace failure. You're opening to challenges. You're open to new ideas. You're excited about it. So your attitude, I talk in there about a kind of an entrepreneurial attitude that you have towards life. Every chapter in that book would be important for entrepreneurs, but those would be the three that I would bring out the most. Okay, wow, awesome. Well, plenty of, uh, of material for entrepreneurs <laughs> to study. Yeah. And uh, finally, to, to, to conclude this uh, amazing interview, uh, I, I always love uh, when I study uh, the work of someone to see how it transforms uh, real people. Uh, if you would have to name only one person who... Uh, had his life changed after reading your books or had like more success than, than he would have otherwise? Who would you name? You mean somebody famous? Mm, oh yeah, I, I mean, it's, maybe something, yeah, someone we can find on the on YouTube, on internet and, and see, you know, be inspired, you know? Maybe uh, not super famous, but at least someone we can find. Well, I mean, I get that a lot from rappers. Mm -hmm. You know, so 50 Cent, I just recently had an interview with Rick Ross. Mm -hmm. And th these people have told me, um, I've met many rappers over the course of the years since my book has come out. Because as you said, they are the, uh, uh, the um, American Africans, Africans American are more like uh, uh, sensible to what you say because they see in a more clear uh, way the hypocrisy of the society and right. the power games. Right. Yeah. So 50 told me that... Um, <clears throat> You know, he, he was a, a street hustler. He was dealing drugs at the age of 13 on the streets of Queens. A very dangerous life. You know, he, he, his mother died when he was like six, seven years old. Wow. He was raised by his grandparents. And he knew that at some point he would become maybe a businessman because that was sort of his ambition. And then um, he got into rap just kind of coincidentally and he met Jam Master Jay from Run DMC, mm -hmm. and that kind of changed him and got him interested in music. He started writing his own music, and it was very good, and, and people liked it. And then, uh, but when he was 19, he was about to sign his first record. His first record was about to come out. He got shot uh, uh, from a drug, uh, somebody who was very upset about his drug dealing. It was a beef, shot him like, from this close on, right into his head, nine bullets. Nine went, bullets? Nine bullets. Wow. Through, through a car window, but they went, pshh, one went right through his mouth, you know, etc. And he came this close to dying. And then 
when he got out, he, he survived. The record deal was, was canceled. So he was back to nothing, right? And it was at that point that he kind of discovered the 48 Laws of Power back in mm. like 1988, 1999. And he understood that the record industry was an incredibly Machiavellian environment. Mm. Their whole business was to get, was to exploit basically uh, rappers to get them to sign a deal. And because they were not sophisticated business-wise to sign off all of their rights to future, to the merchandise, to all sorts of things. And to basically, you know, it was kind of almost like a slave system. Hmm. And um, he had never gone to business or anything. And he found the book extremely helpful. It opened his eyes to all of the people he had already met in the record business. He was really angry that they canceled his record deal over this because they thought it was too controversial. Hmm. So he read the book and it taught him that in fact, his experience was actually the best thing that happened to him hmm. because now he could present, he could present himself to the world as a really authentic rapper. Look, I've been shot. All these other rappers are fake, and I'm the real thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I talk in the book about creating a cult-like presence, about entering action with boldness. He found that very useful, create compelling spectacles. But also in dealing with some of these, these sharks in the business world. So he learned, for instance, uh, he taught me actually some things about how to enter a negotiation. You know, hmm. when you enter a negotiation, you don't talk very much. You let other people do the talking, right? And you have in your mind a price that you want that you're not going to budge from. And you have that in your head and people can kind of sense that from you. And then um, the moment like uh, things are, are, they're starting to argue and they're, and they're kind of not doing what you want, just get up and you leave, you know? You have to have the power to walk away from the deal. And then everyone gets upset and they start coming coming to you. These are all things that were in the 48 Laws of Power. Make other people come to you. Interaction with boldness. So you really know, followed the rules by the book? It really helped him a lot. Yeah. Huh, interesting. And it changed so his he, life. So he reached out to you to write the, the book? He reached out together. to me um, in 2005. He wanted to meet me. And to thank you, I guess. Yeah, yeah. but he wanted to meet me. And he, had, he, he was in the midst of a, of a beef with another rapper. He wanted to maybe talk that over with me. But I think they were thinking maybe of, doing, of us doing a book together. But he didn't present it to me that way. He was very clever about it. <laughs> he also has read my book, The Art of Seduction. And he's a very good seducer. Not just of women, but of Everyone. in a social situation. Huh. He, he seduced my mother and she doesn't interrupt. Really? My 93-year-old mother. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know... Um, but, you know, he really, literally said that the book sort of saved him from that really horrible moment when his career was shattered. The record label dropped him and he had nowhere to go. And so he realized that, you know, the negative thing that you have in life can actually turn into something very positive. And yeah, so that turned his life around. But I get emails from people who are not famous at all who are just sort of starting their career, who tell me stories of how much this book has helped them, mm. you know? Mm. People whose names I can't necessarily name, even some famous people, because they don't want to have their name identified right. with this. Um, and you, I mean, maybe you have a lot of uh, public figures, the, the, most of the public figures maybe are rappers because they are, they don't, they are not afraid of uh, overcoming yeah. political correctness. That's right. But if you're a politician, it's maybe too yeah. risky to say, I, I like this book. Yeah, but there's some young people, who, this one guy who wrote me, he was running for a state representative in Tennessee. He said he used the 48 laws of power to win an election. Who knows where he will go, but he's very young, so he's not afraid of admitting that, mm. you know. So, um, but I get letters from common people who like said, I was in prison, My, you know, I could show them to you. I'm not gonna bore you with it, I have to find them all. You know, I was in prison, my life was going downhill. I read the book and it completely changed my mentality and you know, now I'm doing this, that and the other thing. And not just the 48 Laws of Power, Mastery and some of the other books. Awesome. 
Great. Yeah. So plenty of material also for people to want to go deeper to study. Yeah. So thank you, Robert, for sharing everything uh, with us. This was really uh, deep. Uh, so, uh, well, this book is in French, but you have the English version everywhere in the good uh, bookshops in the US, the UK, Canada, right. uh, Australia, etc., etc. And for, for the people who want to follow you on the internet, you have an Instagram account, a Twitter account, yes. and a website. Uh, and what Facebook. Is the name? Yeah, on Facebook. What is the name of the website? It's Power Seduction and War. The That's and is A N D. PowerSeductionAndWar.com. That's quite a, pro a program. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> well, 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 my intelligent rebels. Thank you for listening. You are still here, which means you are part of the 15%, the 10%, the 5%, maybe the 2% of people who manage to listen until the end. So you are part of the most motivated listeners. Thank you for this and congrats. Now, Would you like to share the love about this podcast if you like it? If yes, feel free to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform like iTunes or Spotify. It will mean the world for me because it will motivate me to continue to create content to help you create your own adventure in life. And it will help spread the word and reach more intelligent rebels and help them also create their own adventure in life. Thank you in advance if you do it and see you soon. Bye-bye.